It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Whoop! <laughs> Wrong button. <laughs> and we're off to a great start. <laughs> Hello, everybody. How are you guys? Good to see you here. Everybody looks excited in the chat room. I just saw Sterling, Illinois go by. I was born in Ottawa, not that far from Sterling, so welcome to the big show. This week's topic is the ultimate guide to getting sync placements. Um, I was inspired to do this show. Uh, every month we do a thing for new taxi members called the New Taxi Member Zoom. And we give brand new members, sorry, I had a little head cold over the weekend, I'm stuffy. Uh, we give new members stuff that people used to have to be a member for half a year, nine months or a year. Uh, they would learn through osmosis by hanging out with other members on the taxi forum, um, by watching taxi TV, by doing their research. We want to give people uh, like a running start on their membership, and it's worked out really, really well. And then I realized after I finished the show uh, or the Zoom, I don't know when it was, a week or so ago, there's still so many people I see online that really, really, really don't have a clue about getting their music and film and TV. And they don't really understand how the industry works. Um, they've grown up with a lot of information that's e either misinformation from the record industry as it used to be, um, or maybe it's real information from the record side of the industry, but it doesn't really apply to the sync side of the industry, but they think it does because nobody has ever told them otherwise. So that's what I'm here to do. Um, and I'm very excited to do this. For a lot of you who are regulars and old timers, you've heard much of this stuff come out of my mouth before. Um, so let's get right to it because I've got a lot of ground to cover. And if we can save questions till the end, because I want to get a rhythm going so I can make it through all this stuff, and hopefully I can get through it quickly enough and succinctly enough that we will have time for some Q&A at the end. All right, so let's get right down to the difference between the music industry you already know about and the music licensing or sync side of the industry. The sync side of or music licensing business is different from the record business in that the record business looks for great songs. They look for hit songs. Believe it or not, the sync business looks for the right songs or instrumentals that support, underscore, or amplify a mood, an emotion, a storyline, or action in a scene. They're not looking for hits. If something is so good that it sounds like a hit, it's gonna distract viewers away from the dialogue and the action in the scene. So it doesn't matter if you have the next Beatles hit in your hands. Uh, if it doesn't serve the scene, they can't use it. Um, number two, people ask, but if my music's incredibly good, wouldn't they want to use it? it? That makes sense on its face, right? If my music is so good, wouldn't they just want to use it? Uh, but think about it. If it doesn't serve the scene, if it doesn't work in the scene, but it's an amazingly good song, would they want to rewrite the script, bring the actors and the crew back, you know, like a hundred people and reshoot, change the film's storyline, and push back the release 
date of the film or TV show just because you've got an awesome song that's so good that they would go to that expense and that trouble and the, the chaos that would cause just to accommodate the use of your song? No, <laughs> they're going to use a song that actually works in the scene so they don't have to do all that stuff. So that's that. Number three. How does the sync industry get your music out there versus the record industry? This one befuddles me. So many people don't know this. Um, we get new taxi members sometimes are uh, just like almost enraged um, over this topic. They don't understand that the traditional record and publishing industry has always been push marketing. I hear a great song from a great songwriter, I'm a publisher, I sign it. Then I pick up the phone or send out emails or send out links to the song to all the people I know in the industry that are working with artists who might cut that song, might be a good fit for them. Um, <coughs> sorry, still a little hangover the cold. That's called casting, not unlike what casting directors do in the movie industry. Um, they're trying to match a song to an artist, so it's pushing it out. Whereas, and, and they pitch it. Uh, this is the word that I see used all the time by people who are new to the sync side of the industry. I don't think that li music library or that publisher I signed with is pitching my music because they signed a deal 30 days ago, 60 days ago, 90 days ago, six months ago, whatever the time period, they feel that somehow they've been screwed for lack of a better word because clearly they're not pitching my music because it's so good if they were getting it out there people'd use it it's the opposite of how it works in film and tv in the music licensing world it's a pull marketing effort versus push pull and what that means is that they sign the music they put it in catalogs and it sits there until the day somebody reaches out to them and says, do you have this? And then they take all of that. It may be two or three or five or 10 pieces of music, songs, instrumentals, whatever. And they send it to them because they've requested it. They have an immediate need for that kind of music. Um, I'm going to, uh, everybody who's a regular has heard this like dozens of times from me, but uh, I'm going to say it again. When I was somewhere around 14 or 15 years old, my parents owned a little department store in a farm town in Illinois. One summer, the shoe lady was out. The lady who managed the shoe department was out for medical stuff. And I had worked some Saturdays in the shoe department, so my dad nominated me, a kid who halfway through high school, you're going to run the shoe department. Okay, dad. Um, so now imagine that a customer comes in, it's a lady and she has, she's going to be a bridesmaid at her best friend's wedding in a week. And she needs shoes to match her bridesmaid dress. So she would come in and sit down. Hi, ma'am. Can I help you? And, um, she would say, yes, I, I need a potassoir pump with a three and a half inch heel and a seven and a half B. So I would trot off to the stock room and look through the shelves. Now imagine if I came out and brought a shoe box out, took the lid off, opened up a little tissue paper and pulled out a men's penny loafer. 
a really nice penny loafer, a great penny loafer, a Basswegian and Cordovan Brown, um, very high quality penny loafer in a size nine and a half D and presented it to this lady who's looking for a high heel pump, three and a half inch heel, uh, seven and a half bead. She'd say, well, that looks like a great shoe, but it's not what I need. So that's why nobody on the sink side of the industry just pushes the music out there to anybody and everybody hoping somebody needs it. They wait until somebody walks into their shoe store and says, I need a lady's pump with a three and a half inch heel. And then they send them pumps with three and a half inch heels. That's how it works. Um, Let's see, I got ahead of myself. So in the film and TV music licensing business, the people who need music for their projects write what are called briefs. They're very similar to taxis listings. In many cases, they're what generate the taxi listings. Our listings are, are more detailed um, and, and give you more clues and hints and direction on how to nail um, that request. But a brief is basically a description. It just says um, something like, uh, did I make a note? Uh, I'm saying if I made a note about briefs. Uh, a brief might say, need a uh, mid-tempo romantic love song from the male perspective. Or maybe I need um, some street sounding hip hop for a scene in a movie where some guys are going out and there's gonna be trouble ahead. So people who have music that they think is a good fit then respond to that request and send the music to the person who requested it. So the vast, vast, vast majority of music used in film and television um, is sent by request. Uh, number four, I signed a piece of music with a library months ago and it still hasn't been used. How long do I have to wait? It depends. Nobody really knows. It's, it's going to get used when somebody requests that kind of music and the piece that you wrote is sent by that production music library, that music licensing company, along with some others in, uh, in like, in most likely. Um, and the person on the end user end who's going to make the decision then picks amongst those things that have been sent in response. So could be a day, could be a week, could be a month, could be six months, could be a year, could be five years, could be 10 years, it could be never. Maybe you have an excellent piece of music in that catalog but the metal you have is Indonesian death metal um, with a female vocal. Not a lot of requests for that. I've been in the industry for 49 years. I've never heard anybody ask for that. I'm not even entirely sure that that's an actual genre, but you get the idea. Um, the more commonplace your music is, the more likely it's going to get requested. So if you're making music, for instance, prog rock, there's a genre of music that just doesn't get requested all the time. Um, it just doesn't. Then again, music that sounds like top 40 contemporary pop that's on the radio or on Spotify or whatever right now today, it's the happening thing. 
that's going to get requested quite a bit because most of the TV productions, most of the movies made, not all, but most, um, you you know, they're shot today. They're, they're produced in today's time period. Therefore, they would need music that sounds appropriate for today. Number five, how do I get my music to a music supervisor? Okay, you folks in the chat room probably talking about how you made your meatloaf last night. <laughs> Pay attention to this one, uh, for the, especially those of you who aren't regulars. How do I get my music to a music supervisor? Well, many people who aren't yet well-versed in the ways of the music licensing industry seem to think that a music supervisor is kind of similar to an A&R person on the record side of the industry. If I could only get my music to that music supervisor, they would clearly hear how wonderful it is, and it may very well be wonderful, but music supervisor doesn't actually pick the music, and they're certainly not looking for hits, as I said before. They're not looking for the best song or the best instrumental. They're looking for the right piece of music for the scene that enhances the emotion or the action in the scene. They're just not looking for a great piece of music that they might love to listen to in their car while they're stuck on the 101 during a traffic jam, but it doesn't work in the scene. So, in fact, a, a music supervisor is actually very analogous to what a casting director does for TV shows or movies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Casting director meets, let's, let's go with the movies. Uh, casting director meets with the film's director, and the film's director has a list of characters that they need actors for, and they go down the list. Okay, for this, uh, the main character's child is a four-year-old precocious little girl with curly hair like Shirley Temple. So the casting director then goes through their database of actors, actresses, child actresses in this case, uh, and, and they can search by five years old, four years old, whatever the age range was that I just used. Um, curly blonde hair, big blue eyes, freckles, whatever the physical characteristics or personality characteristics might be that that director is looking for. Then they do casting sessions where the casting director has narrowed it down to a select few that the casting director feels are really, really strong possibilities because the casting director wants to make the director happy so that the casting director gets hired on subsequent gigs. So they do a good job. Um, they bring in those cute little four-year-old curly blonde-haired actresses and they read a little bit of the script and they talk with the director and the director says, that's the one I want. Well, that's kind of what a music supervisor does. A music supervisor meets with the executive producer of a TV show or the director from a, a film, and they go through top to bottom. Um, okay, four minutes and three seconds and 16 frames. We need, in this scene, we've got whatever action going on, and I need something that is slow and depressing for this scene. And I'm not thinking orchestral, I'm thinking maybe light, moody, singer-songwriter with a male or a female voice on it. 
And so the, the music supervisor goes to work, searches his or her database, reaches out to companies like Taxi, reaches out to production music libraries, whatever resources they routinely use, and they start looking for that kind of music. Then the music supervisor narrows the choices down to the ones that he or she feels are the best fit. And at that point, they would play it for, uh, did I say film? <laughs> if I did, at that point, they play it for the director and the director picks one or doesn't. Maybe the director sends the music supervisor, you know, back to the vault, go find me. None of these really work. They don't really capture the mood. They don't make me feel more depressed. They're okay. They're good. Some of them are really good songs, but they just don't really amplify the mood of the scene. So let's try again. So they do that. That's called a spotting session. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they go all the way through the entire film. And that's the process. So the music supervisor presents possibilities, but is not what I affectionately call the decider. It's the end user. It's probably the executive producer on a TV show. Um, very likely to be the director on a film. So there you go. Um, so then you might wonder, why do people want to get their music to music supervisors? Because they think the music supervisor is going to hear their song and go, that is the best friggin' song I've ever heard in my life. I love it so much, we're going to put it in the movie. But clearly those people weren't, weren't, weren't watching the first five minutes of today's episode and they didn't hear me talk about the fact that it doesn't matter if it's the greatest song in the world if it doesn't fit the scene and it doesn't fill the need that the director of the film has or the executive producer of the TV show has, then they can't use it. So, in most cases, music supervisors prefer to source music from people that they normally work with because they want to make sure that the music will clear. Um, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, but they know that if they work with a production music library or a publisher or somebody in the industry that understands what having a piece of music clear means, they know that they're not going to run into logistical or legal problems being able to license that piece of music. So that's why music supervisors are actually, generally speaking, pretty resistant to taking music from the average Joe or Josie on the street because Joe and Josie probably don't know the ins and outs of the industry all that well, and there's a pretty good chance that their music isn't gonna clear. So now let's talk about what does that mean that a piece of music will clear? It means that the person whose music it is owns or controls the copyright for the composition and the master recording and has the legal right to license it for a film, a TV show, a commercial, video game, whatever. The music supervisor can't take the chance that the music that they present to their boss, who may fall in love with that piece of music, only to find out a little further down the road, sorry, Mr. Steven Spielberg, you can't use that piece of music in your film because the person who gave it to me didn't have the legal right to shop it, number one, or to present it to me. Number two, uh, it's not going to clear because there were some co-writers on this piece of music 
that have since passed away or moved out of the country can't be tracked down and there's no way to get them to sign off that this piece of music can be licensed for your film. But you presented it to me and I love it. Go find them. So if somebody you know who's a co-writer is now deceased, good luck finding out who the heir to that catalog is or that song is and getting them to understand what licensing a piece of music is, getting them to sign off on it. Very difficult. It can be done, but really, really, really hard. Maybe um, there, there might even be publishers that aren't disclosed. Maybe this piece of music was written in 1954 and the person who wrote it or persons who wrote it uh, signed it with a publisher and now that publisher is out of business. Well, when they went out of business, did they sell their catalog? Did somebody inherit the catalog? Who's got the catalog? Because whoever owns that catalog is one of the people that's going to have to give permission for that piece of music to be licensed. Um, maybe they didn't get a work for hire agreement. That's another thing that makes a piece of music licensable, meaning that it will clear. Um, work for hire agreement, let's say that that piece of music that uh, you know what, let's bring it to modern day. Let's say it was recorded three years ago. Um, and let's say that I'm the songwriter and I'm the vocalist on it, but I hired some friends of mine um, to play bass on it, play drums on it, sing background vocals, play horns, whatever. Um, those are work for hires. But did I present those extra musicians with a work for hire agreement, which essentially says... I got paid to do this gig and I have no further claim to any ownership of this music. Because if that stuff doesn't exist, if those documents don't exist, then the music supervisor is going to worry and the director or the executive producer is definitely going to worry. Somebody's going to come out of the woodwork down the road and drop a lawsuit on them because, hey, no, yeah, yeah, I, I, I played bass on that thing, but I came up with that funky bass line. That's a very important part of making that song memorable. Therefore, I think of myself as a co-writer, not just a bass player. But if they'd signed a work for hire agreement, that argument just wouldn't happen. So those are the types of things that can prevent a piece of music from being licensable. And that's why music supervisors generally go to people they know and they trust who are well-versed in the ways of the sync music industry so that they don't get into trouble. They don't blow their reputation with the people that hire them or don't cut corners and, and cause a lawsuit to be dropped on everybody involved in that film or TV show down the road. Number seven, how much do I get paid when I sell a song? Guess what? You don't sell a song. Nobody sells a song. Um, it's a somewhat common misconception that a TV show or a film actually buys a song, but you don't sell your music. In the vast majority of cases, the TV show or the film or TV commercial, whatever, licenses the music, which essentially means they're renting it. So they license it to put it in this TV show for a minute and 12 seconds um, in exchange for X amount of dollars, but they don't take possession 
of the copyright or the master. There are rare exceptions, but I'm not even going to go into explaining that because it will only be confusing and it happens like less than 1% of the time, I believe. Um, but you do get paid sometimes. Uh, it, it depends. It's one of those variables. Um, up front, when somebody licenses your song, let's say that they are going to use a song you wrote uh, in the final scene of an hour-long TV drama on ABC. So they would license the song from the publisher, from the production music library. Um, and, and generally speaking, for a, a network show during prime time on ABC, NBC, CBS, what have you, um, a range might be like 2500 bucks up to five grand. That's for an independent unknown artist. If you're somebody that's known, maybe you're a big indie band that's got a following, maybe you get 10 grand or 20 grand. If you're a, a huge band like, you know, the Rolling Stones, you might get something in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even, you know, approaching a million dollars for a film placement if the song was really you know that upfront and that a lot of it got used maybe it was in the opening of the film opening credits um think uh what was the the bg song it was in saturday night fever um was the song saturday night fever with with uh, john travolta walking down the street in rhythm to the music so that would be a very expensive license because it was a huge band at the time. The song was very prominent. Um, there was no dialogue going on. It was out there in front, it was featured. So everything that could make a song, an expensive song to license, happened in that scene. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Sometimes, oftentimes nowadays, staying alive, thank you all. <laughs> or is it Night Fever? Which one was it? <laughs> I think it was Staying Alive. Um, Anyway, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, so you get paid up front. It's, a, it's called a sync fee. Um, in the case of advertising, it might be called a creative fee rather than a sync fee. Essentially the same thing. Um, many, many years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, MTV um, had a bunch of shows that didn't pay a sync fee up front. And they were thought to be evil at the time. But... It started um, an avalanche of other shows, primarily um, reality shows that generally speaking, there are always exceptions to everything, but generally speaking, the majority of reality television shows don't pay a sync fee up front. So you're thinking, if you're new to the business, well, why the heck would I want my music in that show if they don't pay me anything up front? I feel like I'm getting the short end of the stick. Well, you might be, and certainly it would be better if you did get paid a sync fee up front, but the back end on a show, you know, like Catfish, um, can be really big because the show is syndicated all over, played all over the world on the various MTV networks, um, and the show plays a couple of times, maybe several times a day, and it repeats. People I know personally that have had music, uh, even if it's like a 15 second little piece of instrumental music that's in Catfish uh, make really good back end. So they are okay with not getting thing, getting anything on the front end, not getting a sync fee. 
because they know that they're going to make it on the back end. Obviously, the, the sweet spot is getting a sync fee up front and having a really nice back end. And there are all kinds of variables that go into determining how big the back end is. If your piece of music is used for four and a half seconds on a little indie cable show in Ishpeming, Michigan, excuse me, your ASCAP or BMI, your performing rights money is going to be negligible. It's going to be pennies, prob excuse me, probably under a dollar. Um, then again, if you get it on something that is on MTV all over the world, you know, maybe it's several hundred dollars. So there's a range. Um, there are all kinds of things that go into the formula that the PROs use to calculate what you get paid. But as time goes on and you mature in your knowledge base of your understanding of how the sync industry works, you'll start getting a pretty good feel for where you should put your efforts. Um, so there you go. I'm going to skip the next question. You know what? No, I'm going to take it. It's a lot to do with the one I just answered, and it kind of repeats it. But number eight, what's the range of fees and income I can make for TV shows, feature films, and TV commercials? Well, when you sign your music to a music library, typically, typically, always exceptions to everything, but typically it's a 50-50 split. If the company, the music library, the music licensing company is going to make a buck, you're going to get a buck, <clears throat> both on the front end and the back end. Now, there are exceptions, but very few. Sometimes the company will pay you a fee up front they will give you 100, 200, 500. Used to be kind of standard that people would get a thousand bucks. And that was called a buyout. They would buy out your master and your composition. They would take over the publishing uh, on both of those things. Therefore, you were left with just the writer's share. But I shouldn't say just the writer's share because that can pay significant money as well. So if you got that money up front, if they bought you out, then they would always take 100% of the publisher's share and 100% of the master. And you would be left with the writer's share, which doesn't suck completely, trust me. Um, there are many libraries that don't pay you a fee upfront um, and don't take the, the publisher's share or the master um, or if they do, uh, they, I might have confused that one. I'll have to go back and listen to what I said. If they do pay you something up front, they get the, the publisher's share and the master ownership. There are some that don't pay you up front and get those things, but they will split um, the sync fee 50-50 with you, whereas the company that bought out those rights initially, let's say there's a $3,000 sync fee, they get to keep the whole 3,000 bucks. If they got those rights but didn't pay you anything up front, then it's typical that you would split it 50-50 with them. So while you didn't get 200 or 300 or 500 bucks up front, a year from now they license it, uh, for a TV show and they get $3,500. So you would get $1,725. Did I do that right? Or $17? Whatever, half a third. Yeah. Uh, you would get half, they would get half. Um, I should have gone with $2,500 because I know half of that is $1,250. Bucks. 
Oh, man, I should have stayed in bed today. Um, number nine, why would I want to give up my publishing? I, t I love this one. I took a music business course and the professor told me to hang on to my publishing forever. There are a lot of dead people that still own their publishing and never made a penny. Um, if I had a song that I thought was going to be a huge hit for a megastar, I might hang on to the publishing for that one. Or maybe I would do a co-publishing deal if somebody wanted to sign it, like a Warner Chapel or Sony ATV or Universal Music Publishing. A co-publishing deal means that they would get a piece of the publisher share, probably half of the publisher share. You would get half of the publisher share. You would keep 100% of the writer's share. Um, and you may keep your master ownership as well. You may not, depends on the deal. Um, but, you know, for film and TV, you're probably not going to put your giant hit for Miley Cyrus out there to be licensed for film and TV. Um, you wouldn't do the same kind of deal for that. You would do a deal that would be more typically done inside of the record industry or the publishing industry as it relates to the record industry. Film and TV, like I said at the top of this hour, is a whole different thing. So that professor is a little out of touch with reality. Um, there aren't a lot of people, honestly, that really understand what are the norms on the business side of the film and TV music licensing industry as it relates to independent musicians. Um, there are people that understand, you know, all about licensing a Bee Gees hit for a major film like Saturday Night Fever, uh, but the vast, vast, vast majority of the music that we all hear, um, certainly on the TV side of things, comes from independent people like you. And that's just a different kettle of fish. It, it, so nobody paid attention to that side of the industry for a very long time because it wasn't cool. Um, it wasn't flashy. You didn't work with big artists, but yet there were people just like you out there making money um, licensing their music for TV shows all the time. So tell that professor uh, next time he or she or it, whatever the proper pronoun is these days, tell the professor, reach out to me. So I, I would love to talk to that professor and love to set the professor straight on some parts of the industry that that professor may not know about. Um, oftentimes educators are very reliant on books. Uh, in academia, they don't always have real credentials in the real industry, so they just may not know. Anyway, sorry, I'm catching up. I haven't looked at the chat room today. Um, okay, number 10. I've been told that it's better to create music in response to a brief or a taxi listing rather than pitching music that's already done. Is that true? Yes. And this is a very common mistake with new people who are new to sync. 
Um, so many people uh, over the years have said, oh, I'm not going to join Taxi until I've got a really good catalog to pitch. Um, you might, you probably are creating a catalog that not a lot of people need. Wouldn't you much rather give a size 7.5B ladies pump to a lady who's asked for it than creating sandals and penny loafers? <laughs> and big rubber boots, all kinds of other things that go on your feet that would fall into the general category of shoes, but you don't know that anybody needs those shoes. Or maybe they need the shoes, but they don't need the shoes with a three-inch heel on them. So if you're creating a catalog of music before you jump into the sync industry, you're probably creating stuff that really isn't a good fit. Nobody needs that today. There's no immediate need. Nobody needs it with a three and a half inch heel. Um, there, there's a gentleman on YouTube that has a, a pretty popular channel about doing sync. And for about a year, he kept saying to people over and over, people don't want to sign single songs. Libraries, production music libraries and publishers don't want to sign single songs. They want to sign full albums. Well, there is some truth in that, but his, the way he said it and his approach to putting it out there is his way of educating people about it, I felt was completely wrong. Because if you create an album's worth, a collection of 10, 11, 12, let's say pieces of dramedy, instrumentals, um, it's done and does a particular publisher, production music library, music licensing company, do they need that style. Maybe it's dramedy and every piece in there has pizzicato strings. Maybe they've got a ton of stuff with pizzicato strings in it and now they're looking for something where the part that pizzy strings would normally do has been supplanted by another instrument to make it a little more interesting. Still sounds like dramedy, but yet it's just a little different because they don't need more of the same. Or maybe that style with pizzy strings has become a little outdated. And now people are doing stuff where the pitsy string part is done by a choppy little synth patch or, you know, palm muted guitar strings. Who knows? Um, but now you've got put all that effort into creating something that people don't want. So the taxi methodology has been we bring you taxi listings, which are briefs from these companies that are looking for a certain type of music. They give you quite a bit of direction as to specifically what they need. You create it and they hear one or two or three of your pieces that are forwarded by taxi. And then they reach out to you and say, I really like what you did here. You know what? I could use seven more of those. I'd love to have a collection of 10. Now you're doing it in response to their need and under their guidance, because you might turn in a couple of the first two pieces and they go, that's great. But on the next one, can you add kind of a bell tone pad under it? Or can you add whatever? <laughs> I couldn't think of another instrument, but you get the idea. They are getting exactly what they want and you're loving it because they're telling you exactly what they want rather than you having invested all this time and energy in making music, there's a pretty good chance won't fit what they need at that time or maybe even ever. So there you go. All right, this one's a classic. 
Um, what's an exclusive publishing deal versus a non-exclusive publishing deal? An exclusive publishing deal simply means that one company has the exclusive right to represent that piece of music that you've done for them. It's that simple. Nobody else can represent it. Um, there is something in copyright law that allows for people to do a non-exclusive deal, which on its face is very appealing to a lot of people. <clears throat> and for several years, that's all anybody wanted to sign. And what a non-exclusive deal means is that that same master recording and that same composition can be signed to three publishers, four publishers, five publishers, hypothetically 20 publishers. So now you've got myriad companies out there plugging your work, uh, not plugging, sending it out in response. So you've just upped the probability of your work being used because multiple companies are representing that same piece of music. Sounds good in theory, and to some extent it is. I certainly understand the logic in that. However, um, and I'm, I'm not an attorney, this is not legal advice, uh, and there's nothing untoward or illegal about it, but it is impractical on the end user end because let's say that three companies all have the identical master recording and, and the right to represent the same composition, and all three of them send it into a request from a music supervisor working on a TV show. And the music supervisor takes the first one that came in, plays it for the executive producer, and the EP on the show goes, that's great, let's put it in that scene. Done deal. Paperwork is signed. It ends up in the TV show. Lo and behold, the other two companies that also represent that piece of music non-exclusively are now like, hey, but I sent that to you. Um, oftentimes, it's not really a problem because the music supervisor will say, sorry, Jack, uh, company A got it to me before you did. They got it to me. I'm looking at the timestamp on the email. They got it to me that morning, uh, you know, February 12th at 9 a.m. Yours came in at 11.30, and the other company got it to me at 2 p.m. the same day. So first over the transom is the one that won the day. Sorry. But there could be lawsuits. There have been some. I don't think anybody's won a million dollars in one of those lawsuits. I could be wrong about that. I don't think any of them are, are huge suits, but they create ill will. Um, so the networks um, have largely steered away from using non-exclusive music. Not all networks, not all the time. There are always exceptions to everything. Um, and, and many of our most experienced longtime taxi members will still sign a piece of music into, sometimes they do non-exclusive deals, sometimes they do exclusive deals. So they do a little of each. but. You can't take something that you signed in a non-exclusive deal with company A and then take that same piece of music a week later, a year later, or five years later and sign it to an exclusive deal with company B because they want the exclusive representation on that piece of music. Therefore, they can't have it because it's already out there being represented by a non-exclusive library. Number 12. 
what is a PRO? PRO. <laughs> it's not a pro. A lot of people mistakenly call it, well, I just signed a deal with my pro. Uh, now, that, that's a tennis pro or a golf pro, but that's not what this is. A PRO is a performing rights organization. In the United States, that would be ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. There are one or two others that I don't know the names of because they're relatively new and um, they may not be widely used by all musicians. It may be for an exclusive little subset of musicians. I don't really know the drill on that, but I do know what a PRO is and I do know ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. So you sign with them. People oftentimes mistakenly say, I signed a publishing deal with ASCAP. I signed a publishing deal with BMI or CSEC. No, you didn't. You did not sign a publishing deal with them. You signed a deal where they have the exclusive right to collect performance royalties that you get paid when a piece of your music appears in a TV show or gets played on a radio station or even music on hold or in a concert setting. Let's say you're really lucky and uh, Beyonce sings your song at her concert at the at Crypto.com Center, which used to be the Staples Center. I still call it the Staples Center. Easier to remember. Um, you get paid for all those public performances. So if the paperwork is filed out in the case of a TV show or a movie, um, usually it's an intern or some sort of assistant that files the cue sheet, which is a list of all the pieces of music that are used within a TV show. And it'll say Michael Lasko's song, I Love Debbie, uh, played at this time code number to that time code number in this movie. And it will also have the splits, which is who are the three writers. Um, I wrote it um, and my best friend co-wrote it with me. His name is Tommy James. <laughs> so me and my friend Tommy each own 50%. Um, and they've got our email address. They've got our phone number. They've got our a number um, which is very, I can't remember if it's IPI or IWI, but it's a number that's specific to us. And you always want to use the same name that is on your copyright registrations that you use on your PRO registration. Because if Tommy James is Thomas James on one and Tommy James on the other, one or the other of those two entities is not going to get the check. So it's kind of like having your name on a passport and a different name on a plane ticket. Go ahead. I dare you to try and fly through like any foreign country with a U.S. passport where your name is Mikey Lasko on your passport and Michael Lasko on the plane ticket. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> You're probably going to a jail, a holding cell. Maybe not to jail. Um, Anyway, so the PRO then collects that money because they have these giant blanket licensing agreements with every network, with Crypto.com Arena, probably with the music on hold people. Um, and then they get paid by those entities and then they distribute the money proportionately to the people who earned that money because their music was publicly performed. 
So you do want to be signed with a PRO. It's not a publisher. Once again, a PRO is a performing rights organization that collects money for the public performances of your works. Um, it's not a publisher. So many people think that they have signed a publishing deal and they tell their family and friends, I just signed a publishing company. I'm with a publishing company. No, they didn't. So then the next question, which I'm skipping over one because I already answered it, number 14, when should I sign with a PRO? You can sign at any time, but just know that the minute you license a piece of music or you sign a, oh no, my light is freaking out again. Um, you sign a piece of music, <laughs> it's so weird, this light just does this every now and then. Um, with, a, with a, a publisher or a production music library, um, that's when you're going to need to sign with a PRO because if they get your piece of music in a TV show or a movie or whatever, um, they need a place to send that money and somebody's got to collect it for you. So the PRO um, is something that you should take care of the minute that you sign a piece of music to a publisher or to a production music library. Um, did I answer all that one? I think I did. Oh, um, then people want to know, and I'm going to call this 14A. People often want to know, do I have to register every song with a PRO? Uh, and there is mixed opinion amongst Taxi's most experienced and seasoned members. Um, some people don't sign every piece of music with their PRO because they know that once it goes into the library that the library is going to take care of that or the publisher is going to take care of that. Other people prefer to do it themselves. So I would say the best advice you can get from your most experienced uh, fellow taxi members would be to go on to the taxi forum at forums.taxi.com and hear all sides of that debate and see which side that you think works best for you. Which PRO is the best? I've been getting asked that question since the day I started taxi in 1992. Should I sign with ASCAP? Should I sign with BMI? Or should I sign with CSAC? And the answer is, it depends. And I'm not trying to be coy, but there have been times where people have said, you know, ASCAP is the better way to go if you're doing music for film and TV. Then two years later, something changes in their rules and regulations, and now all of a sudden, BMI is the better way to go, or CSAC is the better way to go. So again, I would recommend going on the Taxi Forum, and asking your fellow members who are very experienced and more seasoned, um, which do you prefer? The best answers will come from people that have been with one and then decided to jump ship and go with another at some other point in time. So maybe they can weigh, you know, which one is better. I also have heard many, many instances over the years where two taxi members are co-writers on something, one of them is a BMI member, one is a CS, or one is a BMI and one is an ASCAP member, and they will notice that there can be 
big variations in the amount of money each of them gets paid, even though same piece of music, same TV show, two writers, this one got $1,000 in back end over a period of time, that one got 278. So that does happen. So the taxi forum at forums.taxi uh, is the way to go. I see people in the chat room um, saying that uh, BMI is the way to go right now. Um, I, I would say that that is word on the street for people that do film and TV music. BMI is on the upside right now. The more people seem to prefer them. But there was a time when it was ASCAP. So like I said, do your research, ask people who are really in the thick of it, which they prefer right now. And know that you can change horses in the middle of the stream. It's hard and there's only a certain window of time when you can do it. But if you've been with one for a period of time and you're just not that happy, um, do your research, get your ducks in a row and find out when and how to execute that change. Like I said, the one thing I have been told by people is they don't make it easy, but they don't chain you to a bedpost with a pair of handcuffs either. They might want to, but they don't. Next question, number 16, do I need to copyright my music? Well, your music is copyrighted, not copywritten. I made that mistake once in print, got a lot of emails about that. Your music is copyrighted the moment that you record it to any medium, be that digital, be that a piece of tape if you still own tape, um, be that a piece of paper if you write it down and chart it. Um, could do a lyric sheet with chords over it. It is copyrighted at that moment in time. It's proving when the copyright came into existence that is the standard for what happens in a court of law. And again, I'm not a music attorney. I'm not any kind of an attorney, actually. <laughs> Although my parents were disappointed that I chose the music industry over law school. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's all about the registration. Um, you need to register your copyright with the library, the copyright office, which is part of the Library of Congress, so that you have an undeniable stamp, if you will, that shows the date that that copyright was registered. And to my understanding, um, the only thing that will hold up in a court of law is, in fact, the registration that comes back to you from the Copyright Office via the Library of Congress. Um, I once asked a very famous, the most famous music attorney who wrote the best-selling book, I asked him the question on stage, I believe at the Road Rally or in an interview for our newsletter, I said, what about the poor man's copyright where you take a cassette or a CD or whatever form and you mail it to yourself um, registered mail, return receipt requested, and then when you get it, you stick that piece of mail in a drawer and never open it. Because um, that would prove by the postmark when you created it. And at that point in time, I think his answer, and I'm italicizing the word think, maybe even underlining it, but I think his answer was, you know, it's better than nothing. And a lot of people want to do that because it's really expensive now to copyright songs. Um, 
I've had everybody I've asked that question to since that day, which had to be 20 or 25 years ago, say, nope, 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 he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. Um, and I'm sure if I asked him today, he would probably recant that answer. Bottom line is, I've been told by many, many, many music attorneys over a lot of years, and some of those music attorneys are personal friends of mine, they will tell me off the record when I'm not paying them, which is rare, uh, that, yeah, the only thing that's going to hold up in a court of law is the registration form that's going to come, proof of registration from Library of Congress Copyright Office. So there you go. Um, oh, I'm going to call this 16A. A lot of taxi members will ask, um, and I'm sure it supplies to those of you watching this who are not yet taxi members, do I need to copyright or register the copyright for every piece of music that I submit to a production music library, a music licensing company, um, a publisher? And there is a mixed bag of answers on this, but I would venture to say, and again, this is not legal advice, um, I would venture to say that most of our most experienced members who have been doing this for years do not bother to copyright a piece of instrumental music because it's unlikely that that piece of instrumental music is ever going to generate the kind of money having a hit song with Miley Cyrus would. So, you know, could that piece of instrumental music generate $12.62? Yeah. Who's going to steal it? Could it generate $1,000? Yeah, it could. Is somebody really going to steal your piece of instrumental music and put it out there as their own? Probably not. I've never heard of that happening, honestly. Uh, doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. Doesn't mean that every music attorney in the world will probably tell you, register your copyright for everything. I'm just telling you what I've heard for years on end from highly experienced, very active, very knowledgeable taxi members, some of whom are in the six-figure <clears throat> annual income club, so they clearly know what they're doing, and they just don't bother registering copyrights for instrumental music. Now, what about songs? Uh, it seems to be that the popular opinion is that the delineation falls. Like, If you have a song that you think is going to be a hit for Beyonce or Miley Cyrus or whomever, who's a big star, it's your grand opus. It's the best damn song you've ever written register that copyright because maybe you're right maybe the value of that song is much much greater than getting a song in a tv show and getting a check for 3500 bucks and making another couple thou on the back end um so i would venture a guess again italicizing the word guess that in most cases the most experienced most active taxi members and other people who are very experienced in sync, probably don't register their copyrights. Now, it is often true that the publishers will register the copyright because they then own the publisher's share of the composition. They own the master recording. So if they're going to register the copyright with themselves as the publisher, um, then they would naturally include you as, on the writer's side. So, and, and yeah, you'd have to go on the paperwork as the songwriter. So they're going to the trouble and expense. Um, but I guarantee if you ask a music attorney, the music attorney will say, always register the copyright for everything. 
you just have to make a business decision. Do I really need to protect the copyright on a piece of dramedy music with pizzicato strings on it? Do I really need to do that? Probably not. Um, there are probably a million other pieces of dramedy out there that have pizzicato strings, and they're all going to sound somewhat alike. I don't think very many people are. You know what? We had a case years ago where a lady was concerned that her song was forwarded by taxi to somebody. Um, and if I remember correctly, it might not have even been forwarded at all, but it, it was like a samba or some form of Latin music, and it ended up in a TV commercial. And there was, in fact, a piece of music used in a TV commercial. Um, and it wasn't utterly dissimilar, but it wasn't wholly similar either. It was debatable. And then, you know, I reached out to a music attorney about this because we want to protect our members and help them if they've got a potential lawsuit to win. Um, we keep paperwork. We keep, well, not paperwork. We keep notes in database. We know when that song came in, who it was forwarded to, blah, blah, blah. In this case, it wasn't forwarded to the company that created the piece of music, so there was no issue. Um, but what we came to learn was many sambas sound alike, whatever form of Latin music it was. You know, it's like blues. Uh, there are so many pieces of blues music that are just a one, four, five blues progression. So you know, it's like, yeah, they both have a similar chord change. They both have a similar feel. Even the melodies are somewhat similar, but you could probably find hundreds of blues, guitar-based blues things that have melodies that are pretty darn close. So there you go. Number 17. Master quality versus demo quality versus broadcast quality. So remember, in today's episode, we're talking about the film and TV side of the music industry. Back when Taxi first started getting our members into film and TV, we needed a way to describe the quality of the engineering performance and production on a piece of music. Um, did it need to be master quality? And back then, you know, master quality was like Michael Jackson in a 48-track digital studio with a console. Actually, Michael Jackson recorded in that room that's sitting behind me right now, which is obviously a green screen. But I took that picture in the room where um, Thriller was mixed. And uh, so that would be master quality. Anything that goes on a record would be master quality. Demo quality might be Michael Jackson sitting at a piano with a realistic or Radio Shack cassette recorder sitting on top of the grand piano while he's banging out the, the melody and the chords and the rough lyric um, to Thriller. But that's a demo. A demo is not good enough to put in a TV show or a movie. And some people are new enough to the industry that they might think, well, couldn't I just send them the demo of my song? And they go, wow, I love this song. Let's put it in the movie. But they're not going to take it in demo form. 
So then they have to rely on you to create a master production, a finished production that sounds like what they imagined in their head that it was going to turn out like. And they get it and they go, eh, we like the demo better. We don't really like this finished version. So now you're in trouble. So I was trying to come up with something that we could use as terminology in the taxi listings. And I happened to open up a paper magazine. Remember those? Uh, is a magazine for like the film and TV industry called Shoot Magazine. And I opened it up. I'm looking for, do I have a magazine nearby? No, I do not. But they, uh, I opened it up and the first thing I saw was an ad for one of those video cameras that you see guys, you know, out shooting news or whatever, a shoulder mounted video camera. And it was by Panasonic for one of their cameras. And it actually said broadcast quality that sits on your shoulder or something like that. And I went ding, 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 broadcast quality. So broadcast quality in the widest sense means that what they're hearing, what you're presenting that they ultimately hopefully will hear is broadcastable. Is that even a word? I don't know. But it means that in the form that it's in now, that it would work. It doesn't sound like a demo. It could be a master. It could be a Michael Jackson record done in that beautiful studio. Um, or it could be, uh, oh gosh, who's the guy that sang in the opening uh, of the Super Bowl? Uh, why can't I not think of his name? The guy with the tattoos all over his face. I just saw him at a restaurant about six months ago, about a mile away from our office, um, Post Malone. So Post Malone has songs that are just him with his acoustic guitar that doesn't always sound like it's got brand new, really, really pretty sparkly strings on it. Um, but it's just him and the guitar and it's raw. But you know what? If the song is meant to sound raw and the emotion and the delivery are meant to sound raw, that would be broadcast quality in the context of that song. So broadcast quality doesn't always, and I think that a lot of people misunderstand it. They think that broadcast quality means my engineering is perfect. We'll get taxi members. They'll say, I can't believe you didn't forward this because I hired the, the guy who mixed uh, we actually had a guy who mixed Nirvana's records and he was really upset that his stuff didn't get forward. It wasn't about broadcast quality or the quality of the engineering or mixing. It was about the fact that the song didn't work for the listing. Maybe it wasn't a great song. Maybe it wasn't what they were looking for. It might have been blues and they were looking for, I don't know, country. Don't know. But whatever the case was, having somebody famous mixing your thing doesn't necessarily mean it's a good fit or a great song. Um, so just know that broadcast quality means that it's broadcastable and you have to think about the context. Um, I used to work with Neil Young a lot and his stuff is a different kind of broadcast quality than an Eagles record, for instance, right? They are somehow loosely in a similar category, very loosely, but you know what I'm saying. People that like the Eagles might also like Neil Young versus people that like death metal may not like Neil, I don't know. But the Eagles are known for being, their records are like pristine and slick, and Neil's stuff is all about 
the feel, the rawness of the emotion. So um, just know that it doesn't always mean the best engineered or the best mixed product. Number 18, do I need to master my music for TV and film? People don't really, some people, maybe a lot of people don't really understand what mastering is. They think that mastering is some sort of magical electronic doodad that you sprinkle on your music and it just makes it sound just like it does on the radio or on a record or wherever. Um, Mastering was originally created to keep the amplitude of the waveform uh, from getting so big that when they were cutting the grooves in the disc that became the master that they made the metal stampers from, that it prevented that diamond cutting head from going too deep and making a valley that was too wide or too shallow that the needle might bounce out of. So they would do, they would put compression or limiting on it to make sure that the amplitude of the waveform didn't get so big um, that that happened. Another aspect of mastering, another reason to use it was oftentimes um, two or three songs from a record were done in one studio in Los Angeles, then two or three others might've been done in a studio in New York. Two or three others might've been done in Miami or Las Vegas or wherever, and studios have different sounds, <clears throat> and, and engineers have different techniques and different aesthetics. So it might be that some of the songs on the record had a lot of bottom end and others didn't. Some had a lot of edgy mid-range and others didn't. Uh, and the levels may vary from track to track. So it'd be very disappointing for you as a consumer to put on a piece of vinyl or a CD and listen to an album. And the first song, you have to turn it up to nine. The second song, you turn it down to two. The third song, you have to turn the bass way down because it's really boomy. So mastering was a way for the mastering engineer to even out everything and make it sound consistent even though it may have been done different studios, different engineers, different instrumentation, all those variables that could make each track sound different or affect the levels. So yes, mastering can add that professional sheen, um, but it's not magical fairy dust. I know this because I'm an engineer retired, but I am an engineer. And I can tell you that for most of you watching this, what mastering means to music that is going to be signed into a production music library or a publishing catalog and ultimately pitched for film and TV, um, there are several brands, I'm not gonna recommend one, but there are two or three that are very popular, one in particular, starts with a no <laughs> that I, I, I upset manufacturers when I mention one brand and not another, but there is mastering software that is relatively easy to use that works very well that will allow you to get a very desirable result, certainly within the context of making music or presenting music for film and television versus making, you know, a record in that studio behind me that's going to be a giant hit record for Miley Cyrus. That would require a professional mastering engineer that really knows what he or she is doing. Um, honestly, and this is coming from an engineer, 
Um, if you know your genre of music, the dynamics of that genre of music, the dynamics and overall sound, um, the EQ balance of that particular style of that song and that genre. Um, if you have any taste at all and have a reasonably good skill set with your home recording stuff, you could use a plug-in like uh, the SSL bus compressor, which sounds great on almost everything. And frankly, is one of the reasons so many records have that, what they call nowadays glue, that sheen. Um, spend 35 bucks at Waves, buy the SSL bus compressor and hit the button and turn it up about a third of the way to half of the way so that the needle isn't kicking a ridiculous amount. And that will automatic it gives you compression and automatically compensates the output to give you a healthy output that should be good enough i know that there are going to be people that are going to watch this and go oh my god i can't believe you said that um to which i ask and i don't mean to sound like a jerk when i say this but how many gold or platinum records do you have on your wall um i used to engineer at a high level in professional studios and was surrounded and taught by the best in the business my opinion, that's my opinion of me. <laughs> no, no, that's my opinion of what it is. There are other people that are going to have differing opinions or could add a little salt and pepper to what I said, but that's the basic. I'm, I'm not going to get deep into the weeds on what mastering is or why you need it mastered, but basically you want healthy levels and not too much bottom, not too much mid, and not too much top. Uh, and you can get that if you've got reasonably good home engineering skills, um, a reasonably good monitoring situation, you can accomplish what would put a smile on the face of most production music libraries. I'm afraid to, <laughs> afraid to look at what's going on in the chat room, so I'm just going to leave that one at that. Anybody who disagrees with me, you're getting coal in your stocking next year at Christmas <laughs> because I am the world's foremost authority on mastering, and don't you forget it. <laughs> Um, number 19, discuss instrumentals versus instrumental cues. What is the difference? That confuses a lot of people who are new to the production music or film uh, or TV music licensing side of the industry. Um, an instrumental cue is written in a, a certain style and format. It's not a song. A song is typically, although the times, songs are getting shorter by the year, I must say. But back in my day, um, back when I was the world's foremost expert on everything, um, a song was typically three, three and a half minutes, maybe even pushing four minutes. Let's call, call it three and a half minutes. And it would have an intro that the DJ could talk over and say, here's the latest record from Neil Young. Uh, it would have an intro, a verse, a chorus, a bridge, another chorus, second verse, chorus, outro, all that stuff, all those different components. An instrumental is oftentimes, not 100%, everything requires context in today's episode, oftentimes an instrumental is that song style arrangement without a vocal. But as you will hear when you mute the vocal channel, now it sounds like a rhythm track and you'd be right in thinking that. 
So then some people try and add melody back to it and they will take an instrument, whether it is a guitar, a piano, a synth, a flute, whatever, and try and add the entire melody line that the vocal would do back in. So now, excuse me, it's an instrumental. <laughs> it sounds funny. It sounds like 101 strings doing a Beatles song in an elevator because you've added back the full melody. So my personal opinion, this is my own personal advice. I came up with this on my own. Nobody taught it to me. It just one day occurred to me. Why not do what I call melody light, which is rather than putting in the entire melody and making it sound like 101 strings doing Beatles in an elevator, why not just hit like, you know, the first note of every bar? Don't put in a full melody, just ding, 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 ding. So it gives it some melodic movement, but not enough to try and supplant what the vocalist used to do with the vocal melody. So that is my opinion of what constitutes an instrumental. An instrumental cue is gen does generally, almost without exception, does not have an intro, certainly not a, a long intro like a, a, a song would have for a record. Um, probably doesn't have a, a verse, a chorus, a bridge, all those components. Basically, an instrumental cue, in my opinion, I think most people would agree with me, is more like the chorus section of the song. Let's call that the A section. And it's gonna last for 90 seconds to two minutes, maybe two and a half minutes. So it's shorter than a song, but it's just one long A section. There are many people that will also put in a B section, which I would say is kind of akin to a bridge, just to add some variation for an editor that might use that piece of instrumental music for a TV show. And maybe they need a little variation. Now the trick is, let's, let's go with the strictly A section from beginning to end. Um, in an instrumental cue, start out light, build it up a little bit, build it up a little more, build it up a little more, and then boom, big finish. I happen to have this is actually a graph of, of an actual instrumental cue. And you can see, hate doing this backwards, it starts out light and gets bigger, gets bigger. Oh, look, there's an edit point right there. So if you want, because it's extremely rare, almost never happens that they use an entire instrumental cue. And there's the next section. And look, there's an even better edit point. So if the editor, which is often a video editor chopping up the music, just wants to get this big, robust ending, they want to start it right there. Well, that's a great place to get an edit point. So that is what an instrumental cue looks like. And here is another example of an instrumental cue. See how it starts out light down here, then drops down. This is probably the B section in here. And then there's a rest for an edit point in there. And then boom, whoops, <laughs> it's really hard to do this backwards. You get the idea. So here, how close can I get those? I can get those really close. Okay, great example of an instrumental cue on a waveform. Another great example of an instrumental cue. So for those of you who don't know the difference, hopefully that explains it well. Um, 
Ken says, that's from the new instrumental cue listing. You would be right about that, Ken. Wow, you should be a detective. I noticed that the other day as well. And that is, in fact, at least one of those is from a piece of music that was used as a reference. And, and I'm, I literally printed these out probably five years ago. So that piece of music has been around and has been used as a reference more than once. Um, how am I doing on time? Wow, I've only got 10 minutes left. All right. Um, the difference between what is a buttoned or stinger ending? Listen to the end of this and you will find out. That is both a buttoned and stinger ending. I would say that that's a stinger. A buttoned ending, let's say it's a string quartet or a little acoustic guitar, something lighter without the robustness and impact that that piece had. If it just ends on the tonic, on the downbeat, you know, that's a button, bump, no fade. Um, this one, because it's bigger, I would call that a stinger. And listen to like the last, da 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 da. You could use this last piece on its own. If you were an editor, you could get a figurative razor blade in there. This is not the actual piece of music, but you could do an edit point right there and just have da 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 and slip that in somewhere. Listen. That is a stinger. Some people call that a sting out. End of a scene, bam, 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 bam. Or you could just have bump. That's an even shorter sting. So there you go. Hope that explains it. Um, wait, wait, where did I go? I lost my place. Be right there. There we go. What's a developmental arc? I just showed you, but once again, that, my friends, you know, I should have put those in the actual broadcasting software. I could have popped that up on the screen a little more professionally, but why would I ruin the vibe of the show by doing that? So that's a developmental arc. Some people think that an arc means this. <laughs> no, not that kind of arc. That's an arch. Could be called an arc, I guess. But a developmental arc is like the developmental arc in a TV show um, or developmental arc in a book or a movie. Um, so there you go. Number 23. Am I better off creating songs or instrumental music if I want to become successful in the music licensing industry? It's a great question. There is no great answer. It depends. It depends on the context. Uh, what are you better at? Um, typically, people who are really good at songs are also really good at doing instrumentals because songs are built on an instrumental bed. Um, 
To give some perspective, a typical reality television show has between 85 and maybe as many as 125 instrumental cues that are used in the context of that show. They pay much less than getting a song used in a montage at the end of a big drama on broadcast network, you know, like ABC. Um, but far fewer of them get used. So we have some taxi members that are making six figures a year by getting nothing but what I affectionately call, and have been saying this for years, stupid little instrumental cues that generate a six-figure income. They have to get a lot of instrumentals, a lot of instrumental cues in a lot of different catalogs. Um, there is no magic number. People say, how many you know pieces of music do I need to get out there to generate $100,000? It depends. There are people that have done that with 700. There are people who have done it with 1,000. There are people who have done it with 3,000. I don't know. It all depends on the genres of music that you're making within that big number. You could have, you know, 1,000 pieces of heavy metal out there in 20 different catalogs, but you're not going to make nearly as much as somebody that's got 1,000 pieces of hip-hop music out there in the same number of catalogs. So there you go. Um, Honestly, if you are comfortable and good at doing both, try doing both. Um, consider instrumental cues your bread and butter, and you're probably not going to make a lot of sync fees up front, but maybe you're also really good at doing songs. So why not do both? And sometimes you might get a check for 2500 or five grand for you know a um, sync fee on a, on a song placement. But meanwhile, you're making money in between those big checks with the instrumental stuff landing in reality television. How much money can I make with music licensing? Um, never enough is the answer. Now, it, we do have members that make six-figure incomes, but it, it, it all depends. Again, if you're doing heavy metal, not nearly as many uses for that as hip-hop. So there you go. <clears throat> we have some taxi members that make a couple thousand dollars a year in their very part-time efforts. And they are emotionally very, very happy and proud to show their family and friends, look, I got a piece of music in that really famous TV show or movie. Um, there are other people that want to make a supplemental income of 10, 20, 50 grand a year and still keep their day job. Um, and that same person may be working toward the eventual departure from their day job. Um, Matt Hurt, uh, no, not Matt Hurt, uh, Matt Vanderbilt is the greatest example. Um, I want to say he was making, and he's disclosed this publicly, so I'm not telling tales out of school, but I think he was making 50 or 60 grand a year as a professor at a university in Idaho. Uh, and he always said, the day that I make more money doing music is the day I quit being a professor and go after this music thing full time. And he did. So he crossed that $50,000, $60,000 threshold. I think it took him about five years to get there, which sounds about right. And he worked very hard, very diligently. He didn't like wait for the muse to show up. This is a guy that poured his cup of coffee went into the studio and started working at 9 a.m. And, and worked his butt off for five years, went after it like, I, I just can't even tell you, he was voracious in going after it and it worked out for him. 
There are other people that like their day job. Um, maybe they already work from home. Maybe they do computer programming and studio is right there in front of them. So when they finish their day job, they can spend three hours a day working on music stuff. I can think of people, a lot of people have disclosed what their income levels are to me. And I, I know people who um, are really talented, have been doing this for years, um, and make an extra 40, 50, 60 grand a year on top of their day job. And I think that's a great way to go at it for a lot of people. The cool thing about production music is you can do it after you retire. So let's say you've got that day job and you're making another 50K a year doing the music part-time. Then you retire at 65. You're not gonna retire, retire, right? Um, so you could hypothetically do eight hours a day of music. It's what you love to do and really build up your catalog. So by the time you're 70 years old, you got the income rolling in. By the time you're 80 or 85 or 90 and you put on your little angel wings and fly to heaven, your family would get a really nice inheritance. So there's that to consider. Um, how many tracks or songs do I need to make a living with music licensing? It depends. Again, if you're doing heavy metal and you've got a thousand tracks of heavy metal out there in many, many libraries, those won't get as many uses as a thousand tracks of hip hop will. So, you can't really put a number on it. But if you've got 20 tracks or 50 tracks or 100 tracks out there, you're not going to make a lot of money doing it. I, I would say that you need several hundred, many hundreds, or a thousand or more um, in genres that get used quite a bit in several catalogs. That is the way I would go about it if I were you. <laughs> Somebody in the chat room just said, I plan on living to age 114 or a little longer. Well, there you go. Um, I'm not going to comment on that. How long does it take to get paid? Let me do that again. How long does it take to get paid? <laughs> it depends. Um, I would say at the earliest three months, and that would probably be exceptional typically six months and this we're talking the back end the money from your pro especially if you have let's say you live in los angeles you're signed to one of the american pros and you get a placement in germany you are not going to see that payment probably for at least a year probably a year and a half on a really bad day maybe even two years out i'd say a year and a half is probably typical um so it depends, but that is the range, and I hope that answers the question for you. Um, and finally, what are the most common genres of music needed for placements? Um, everybody I ask on the music library side of things, I, I think 100% of them would tell you hip-hop, um, both hip-hop instrumentals and hip-hop songs. Um, it's, you know, it tops the charts, it's at the top of the musical consciousness of the world, pretty much, at least, of, you know, like the big industrialized nations. Um, certainly hip hop beats have crossed over into country and pop and rock and every other form of music. But hip hop is just something that gets used a lot. Top 40 pop, whatever, you know, top 40 pop from five years ago, not as much as top 40 pop from right now. 
because, as I said earlier in this episode, most of the TV shows and films we see are shot in pre or produced in present day. Not all. There are always exceptions. So don't don't send me a bunch of emails. I remember a movie that was from 1947. I'm sure they're out there. I know they're out there. Most of the stuff is present day, so they need music playing on a car radio and a jukebox in a bar, um, whatever, however the music is used, but they want music that sounds like it's of today. It could be that 70s show and they need music that is from the 70s. So it depends. Well, folks, that's it. And I'm only a minute, whoop, exactly two minutes over. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I put a lot of work into it, so I really hope you enjoyed it. Guess what I was working on in the middle of the Super Bowl? That. Um, every time they broke for, and it was hard to do it during commercial breaks because there were some, there weren't a lot of great commercials. The Dunkin' Donuts commercial was my personal favorite, right? Um, my thoughts on the Super Bowl, let's just say, I love, I was never a Kansas City Chiefs fan until Patrick Mahomes started playing for them. I love watching that guy play. But I got to tell you, the last quarter of that game and then the overtime quarter, wow. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I have no fingernails left on that hand like that. That was intense. Great game. Um, I'm sure that people who wanted San Francisco to win would not agree with me on that. Next week... Um, I'm going to have a really good show for you next week because um, a gentleman, I believe his name is Joe from Banzoogle, is going to join me. I can't tell you how many times I search up a piece of music from one of our members that they no longer have, maybe on their member profile in the, ta in the taxi database. And I search for it online and I finally find it on some third-party website and they don't have a website. Yet I can tell you that probably 80 or 90% of our most successful members have a website. Doesn't have to be 20 layers deep. Doesn't have to be super impressive. It's just got to be clean, direct to the point. Don't use fancy fonts that people can't read. Um, learn something about layout. Learn a little something about marketing. So next week, we're going to be joined by a gentleman from Banzoogle who is pre-making about an hour-long tutorial on how to build a website for presenting your music, both as an artist, film and TV. It's all applicable. Um, and after we play the video, he's going to hang out for half an hour and do Q&A. Um, first of all, I would say the vast majority of our members that have built websites, and I think they're really smart for doing so, have done it with Banzoogle. I saw, uh, this came up actually because I saw somebody's website a few months ago, probably three or four months ago. I thought, wow, what this is like the perfect musician website. And lo and behold, it was done in Banzoogle. And I know a fair amount about Banzoogle. I've known them for years, but I had no idea that their software made it so easy to build such an incredibly good-looking um, website as this person had. So make sure you're here for that next week. Um, and I think I asked them if they would give away like a free year of Banzoogle hosting. I think I did. We'll find out. Um, thanks for joining me today. Hope you enjoyed this.
Bye-bye. Have a great week, everybody. See you next week on Taxi TV. Taxi TV.